This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Good morning, traders. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. My name is Jack Pelzer, and this is the periodic audio recording during which we discuss markets, futures, forex, trading psychology with some of the best in the business. Today, we're releasing the second installment of our two-part interview with the host of the Daily FX podcast, Martin Essex. Martin is a fascinating guy. He's got over 40 years of experience in the industry. Plus, his work has been featured in places such as the BBC and Wall Street Journal. Those are some big publications, folks. They don't just let anyone pen articles over at the journal. Believe me, they have not printed any of the dozens of lengthy articles I've sent them over the years. And just because they were, quote, paranoid and factually incorrect doesn't mean that it didn't hurt my feelings at the time. But the main point here is that Martin Essex is the real deal when it comes to financial reporting. So stick around, because you're not going to want to miss his thoughts on macroeconomics and market dynamics. Anyway, that's enough for me for now. But before we kick things over to Jeff and Martin, why don't we get a little check on this week's wild market volatility with our very own Mark Meadows and the market reaction. As traders, we want two-sided action. And that's what we got this week. One tweet by President Trump sent the markets higher, followed by a strong sell-off on Wednesday. And the yield curve inverted. People in the media will be sure to point out this is an indicator of recession. What they won't point out is there's no timing component to that indicator. What do I mean? Yes, the yield curve inversion tends to predict recessions, but they could be 2 or 20 months away. That's not really helpful. But the indicator becomes even more murky if I throw some other data at you. In the six months following a Federal Reserve 25 basis point cut, the stock market tends to be 5.6% higher. So what are you going to believe? Is there an imminent recession coming, or is the Fed stimulating at just the right time? Fortunately, we don't have to guess what will happen in two months or six months. Instead, we just need to come in tomorrow, focus on what our plan will be for trading our market that day. If you do that, if you focus on the levels day in and day out, you will trade better. Let others play the prognostication game. Stay out of that. And that's your market reaction. Thank you, Mark. Our guest today needs no introduction, in large part because we introduced him last week during the first half of this interview. As we mentioned earlier, he has over 40 years of experience in the financial reporting industry. And his work has been featured in publications such as the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and the BBC. He is currently the host of the popular Daily FX podcast, which you can find over at the dailyfx.com or wherever else podcasts are sold. So ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to welcome back Martin Essex for part two of his Limit Up interview with Jeff Carter. You're in FX now. I think Americans are a little tunnel vision when it comes to FX because our country's so big and you just use a dollar. And even if I go a lot of places, I can use a dollar. For, for instance, if I go to Argentina, they'd rather have a dollar than uh, an Argentine peso. Where do you see the potential in FX markets given how big they are? And then what happens if uh, Brexit really happens? What happens to the euro? Do you think it survives? Well, first of all, um, 
Daily FX, our parent company is IG, and they also give demo accounts. So as you say, that's a good place to start. Start with the demo account. We are not actually losing real money. Um, yes, living in the UK, um, as I do at the moment, um, I need to travel a lot. To give you an example, I was living um, a year and a half ago in Ireland. And that means that I had, it's complicated, but I had income and outgoings in both sterling and euros. So yes, I need an understanding of how those things work. And a lot of us travel in Europe and we travel um, not just within the Eurozone or within the UK, but to places like um, Switzerland and Turkey, where they have their own currencies as well. So I think maybe we're just a little bit more, it's a little bit closer to home to know about these different currencies. And we, we, a, lot of, a lot of English go on holiday to Spain. So in that sense, they get their immediate understanding of, okay, the pound has gone down. That means that my holiday spending in euros has gone up. So we have that basic understanding, I think. Yeah, that too. And London is such a melting pot. So, you know, you've got the old empire, so you've got all the immigrants there from that. And and then the Turks, and it's an international city as much as it is a British city almost, you know? Mm, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, London is probably the most multicultural city in the world. It probably is. Right. Where were we? Um, UK and Brexit. Um, I think the betting at the moment would be that the UK is going to leave the EU without a deal. The two candidates for um, leadership of the Conservative Party here, and therefore the next British Prime Minister, have both essentially said that they will leave on October the 31st uh, with or without a deal. So a hard Brexit. A hard Brexit or a cliff-edge Brexit or whatever phrase you like to use. And that's why sterling has been falling so sharply in recent days. Um, will it fall any further? Well, I guess it has to stop at some point. But I, I, I have seen headlines that say things like, uh, this is in the general news media, saying things like, well, sterling's going to drop to parity with the euro. I've even heard people say it'll drop to parity with the US dollar. I think once you see headlines like that, you begin to think, hmm, I wonder if it's actually due a bounce. Because once this is in newspaper headlines, it tends to mean, uh, okay, uh, I think it's now time to take a contrarian position. I also wonder why the euro hasn't fallen, maybe not as much as the pound, but at least fallen. Because after all, this is going to be highly damaging to Europe as well as to, or to the eurozone as well as to the UK. Being very simplistic about it, the Germans won't be able to sell as many cars to the UK. The French won't be able to sell as much cheese to the UK and so on. I think their economies will suffer as well. And I just have a feeling that people know about the knock that there will probably be to the UK economy, but they're underestimating the knock there could be to the Eurozone economy as well. So therefore, I think that if you think sterling is maybe now roughly where it should be, maybe the Euro is the currency that should be a bit weaker. Yeah. What about though... The case that could be made if there's a hard Brexit and Britain exits sort of the regulatory regime from Brussels, that it frees up their economy to do different deals, different things, uh, more independence, autonomy, creates more competition, which should elevate the British economy. Absolutely. And a lot of people say that. 
I think that uh, the people who voted for Brexit are widely regarded as being uh, racists and and little Englanders and and uh, you know people who who don't like the outside world. But that's not true. A lot of people voted for Brexit because they thought the economy would be stronger outside, where we don't have tighter regulation, where we could have lower taxes, and. There are people who say, "Well, we're being held back by the the eurozone, um, the eurozone officials, the eurozone bureaucracy." There's all these unelected officials in Brussels who are just simply appointed amongst themselves. And if we weren't part of that system, we wouldn't have to be bound by all those rules and regulations. Now, I can see the other side to that argument. I mean, we need some regulations about. Uh, Oh, I don't know the environment or uh, all sorts of things. But yes, there is an argument that the UK could be stronger outside. It, the economy could dip for a while, but longer term, yes, it could be stronger. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I wonder what Winston Churchill would would say. I, you know, he was such a defender of the island, but he was such an international man. I, I you know, I was a big Churchill guy, so um, it'd be interesting to see uh, what he would have to say about the debate today. No, I mean, I, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, I was living in Ireland for a year, so um, I know a lot about how that economy has boomed due to the incoming tech companies, principally. I and mean, if you go to Dublin now, I mean, that's a, another major city these days, and it's a major international city these days because so many American corporates are setting up offices there. Okay, they're not paying very much tax. We know that, but still, and all the the Irish economy is growing, and it's still part of the eurozone. So, in some senses, it's held back. But on the other hand, it's proven that lower taxes and so on can attract a lot of business and can do a lot of good for the economy. We actually have an investment uh, out of Westloop Ventures in Ireland. Um, it's a uh, banking dot global, and what they do is allow immigrants to have sort of bank accounts because they can't set up bank accounts because of immigration. Um, they're credit worthy, but a bank can, you know, download Pipit, pay a couple thousand pounds, um, and then participate in money transfer without any MLKYC. Um, they came out of uh, Ireland. Well, that's interesting because one of my biggest problems when I got to Ireland was trying to open a bank account. I had to, okay, I was living somewhere, but um, I had to prove that I had electricity, gas, water, and so on. And I couldn't set up accounts for those because I didn't have a bank account. So you can't set up utilities because you don't have a bank account uh, and vice versa. So it took me ages to to actually get a bank account. Yeah. It's amazing. You're like almost a non-person. Even though you're credit worthy, you have a job and all that stuff, but you just can't do it. It's, it's, a, it's totally amazing. What do you make of cryptocurrencies? I don't understand why people like cryptocurrencies. I, I just have a blank spot there. I just simply don't get it. What about it don't you get? Well, where do the normal laws of supply and demand come in? I mean, they, they just simply don't exist. And as a result, you get the price going soaring one week and collapsing the next week for no obvious reason. Or you get robberies from, from crypto bank accounts, if you like. You, you uh, it just nothing to me makes sense. People say, oh, it's the new gold. It's the safe haven. Oh, give me a break. What on earth is safe about Bitcoin? None of the rules apply. 
I think if you're lucky, you'll make money, but you probably won't. What I do, what I do like, and this is different, is blockchain, which is the technology underpinning Bitcoin. Now that I think is the future. Let me give you an example. Um, I don't know quite how you buy and sell houses over there, but how we do it over here is that there's a buyer, there's a seller, there's the lawyers acting for the buyer, the lawyers acting for the seller, there's the um, mortgage companies that are lending you money. There's all these different people who are part of that transaction. We call them estate agents, the people who um, bring the buyer and seller together. And that's, I don't know how many that is, eight people who are involved in this. Well, if you were to introduce blockchain, you could see precisely what everybody had done. You could see whether the lawyers had done their job, whether the estate agents had done their job, whether the mortgage companies. You can see every step of the way visible to everybody who is doing what, who needs to do what next. And I think that's terrific. And of course, it's not just applicable to property. It's a, it, it, it would work in banking. It would work in lots of other places as well. So I think that is the future. It's just cryptocurrencies. Take take Libra, the, the new cryptocurrency from Facebook or proposed cryptocurrency. Do you really trust Facebook in that way? I mean, I I know a lot of people struggle sometimes to uh, to, to to trust their central banks. You know, our our banknotes say the Bank of England promises to pay, and you think, yeah, okay. But if it was Facebook, would, would you actually say, I trust Facebook to issue this currency that I'm going to trade? Uh, sorry, no, I don't. Yeah, in Zuck we trust. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw that. I thought it was interesting, um, a lot of hype. And then as soon as it got some critical looks, a lot of the backers kind of pulled down a little bit. When I looked at it, I mean, Pippet can already transfer money digitally and make payments and stuff using fiat. So it wasn't as impressive to me. To me, it seemed like it was more, it was an elevation of their walled garden, trying to keep you inside of it, sort of like they do in um, in China with, I think it's WeChat, right? You can pay inside WeChat using Chinese currency and all, all kinds of things like that. Um, it seemed to be mimicking that. I think I can go both ways on cryptocurrencies uh, myself. I see potential and I can see the downsides uh, that you clearly elucidated. I think the first use case, though, is going to be in um, supply chains because you can make supply chains a lot more efficient. I, I see the real estate angle. I think that comes in the U.S. You know, we do title search and we've got a lot of different things. I just see that the real estate industry is more risk averse than a business trying to get the bullwhip effect out of its supply chain where it can minimize costs, get a bigger profit margin, and uh, not have to raise prices to consumers. So um, having clear transfer prices as work goes from raw materials to finished goods um, might be an interesting use case. I know they're trying to use it in shipping from Singapore. Um, IBM has a a blockchain kind of thing, but I don't know how successful that's been. And again, simplistically, there's no currency risk either, is there? I mean, if once you've reached a deal in so many um, Bitcoin, you don't have to worry about the sterling dollar exchange rate, for example. That's right. And and I think like, you know, it, let's say it's wildly successful. You're just going to have more pairs, right? You're going to have 
cryptocurrencies paired with different fiat currencies. That's why I, I, a lot of people talk about stable coins, and I'm like, eh, that's just fiat currency. I'm not sure that that really works really well. Um, so you were the senior international economist. What kind of clients did you do work for when you did that? <laughs> you might find this funny, but um, one or two of our clients, in fact, rather more than one or two, were the major, well, the boards of big banks, because the board of the big bank would call in its own economists, and its own economists would have their views. And they thought, well, actually, that's great, but we liked somebody else's opinion as well. And so they'd call us in to do the forecasting as well. I mean, this was all macro forecasting. It wasn't the, you know, the bank's business, but they wanted to double check on um, what their own people were saying. And I always thought that was very interesting. I mean, obviously, I can't name any of the banks, but these were big international banks. And you got the feeling, well, actually, the, the CEO or the CFO or the treasurer doesn't really trust his own people um, in the bank. And I thought that was very strange. Yeah, that or he needed a check on them mm. to make sure they were doing things right, you know. Uh, but otherwise, the people you'd expect, corporate treasurers and so on, this was these were all, um, uh, they weren't individuals, they were all institutions. Yeah. So it's interesting because when I was going to college back in the dark ages, um, before we had calculators and stuff, when I was taught macroeconomics, I was taught the ISLM curve, you know, the four quadrants, blah, 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 blah. And then when I got my MBA at the University of Chicago, a guy named David Altig taught me, who's the chief, I think he's chief research officer of the Atlanta Fed now. At the time, he was Cleveland Fed. He writes a blog called Macroblog. And he showed me the classical equation of C plus I plus G um, with multiplier effects and all that stuff. Do you subscribe to either camp? Well, it, these are useful equations, obviously. Y equals C plus I plus G plus X minus, you know, all that. Clearly, it's useful if you're a 15-year-old learning economics. But it, it, <laughs> how do you measure GDP? Let's start with that question. Um, there are at least three different ways of measuring it. You can measure it by income or expenditure uh, or output. They give you three completely different answers. If you want to know what the total GDP of a country is, uh, hard to say, because not only do we not know really very well how to measure it, but we know that, that there's various different ways of measuring it that will give us different answers. Well, that's just about as basic as you can possibly get. I mean, if you don't know the overall size of your economy, what do you know? And then there's, well, actually, is GDP a useful measure anyway? Well, in some cases, yes. I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, in, in, I'm sorry to keep talking about Ireland, but in Ireland, for example, it's it's of pretty much no use at all because UK companies invest abroad and foreign companies invest in the UK. So these flows backwards and forwards pretty much even each other out. So GDP and GNP, gross national product, are pretty much the same. In Ireland, there's an awful lot of foreign companies investing in Ireland. But there's very few Irish companies investing abroad. And so the, the two measures, GDP and GNP, are totally different. Well, not only can you not measure GDP, but once you've got GDP, you don't really know whether you should be using it or you should be using GNP instead. Um, people say things like, 
oh, well, you know, the Irish are now richest in Europe, uh, GDP per head. And I'm sort of scratching my head thinking, well, it doesn't feel like that when you're there. It really does not feel as though the Irish are incredibly wealthy. I mean, far more wealthy than they were, of course, but you know, still the, the railways aren't very good. Some of the roads aren't very good. The health service isn't very good. And you think, I, I just don't believe those figures. It's just, you should stop and you should stand there and you should say, does this look to me like the richest country per head in Europe? No, it doesn't. Trust your own instincts on that. Don't trust the data that gives the wrong idea. Right. Interesting. I always looked at it as standard of living, right? So if you could, I remember they said GDP is an irrelevant number. This was from 2009 to, I don't know, 2014. It'll never be above, in the US, um, it'll never be above 2% growth again. You know, you heard a lot of that. And now all of a sudden, of course, we've got higher growth than that. And, and of course, that would lend credence to the multiplier effect of government spending since we're spending a ton. And, and it just never seemed right to me. But it is a good measure, I think, of standard of living, like you say. So are your roads better, which in a place like Illinois, our roads are pretty crappy. And frankly, our GDP has gone down relative to other states around us. So maybe it is a good number. I don't know. Um, well, we do all have these debates, don't we, about not just about wealth, but about um, how the wealth is spread out. Now, um, uh, in this country, people say, oh, well, you know, London is rich and the North is poor. Well, yeah, there's plenty of very poor places in London. There's plenty of fairly rich places in the North. I mean, there are places in the US I've been to where I've been really shocked at just how poor the people seem to be. I don't know if I'm allowed to name one, but let's say Mississippi, for example. Yeah, my family's from there. <laughs> <laughs> I was absolutely shocked. I was in the Mississippi Delta and I, I just- Oh, were you? Yeah. You know, I was talking to people saying, you know, it, how come the infrastructure is so bad here? And they said, well, <laughs> if you think this is bad, try going up into the mountains and see what it's like up there. And I think, in the UK as well as in the US, that's really shocking. I mean, did wealth needs to be distributed a lot better than it is at the moment. And I think that goes back to where we started this conversation, which is about economics not really working very well. Because if, if wealth isn't distributed, I'm sure that's bad for everybody. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, because government's obviously a poor redistributor. I mean, we've proven that, right? just by Mississippi and other places. Um, my family's from down there and um, I have a place in Northern Minnesota and the government between the state and the feds owns, I don't know, 85% of the land. And it's the poorest County in, um, in Minnesota and it's Cook County, but corporations, because there's nobody that lives there, they don't have the incentive to go do anything there. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this Opportunity Zone Act that Trump passed in the tax reform bill will have any effect. It's too soon to tell, obviously, but it, it'll be interesting to see. And I think most of the work will be done in the inner cities initially, but there's Opportunity Zones in rural areas as well. So another thing I wanted to talk to you about was like futures markets. So do you like them better than cash markets? And what do you see your role is? Uh, covering futures markets for daily FX? Oh, well, I don't cover the futures markets for daily FX. Um, oh, you don't? Okay. No, I cover the spot markets in currencies, commodities, and stocks. 
So um, my main focus is on spot forex exchange rates and also on um, gold and crude oil and so forth. Um, I would only really use the derivatives markets if I'm trying to look up, um, as we were discussing before, what the chances are of the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates on July the 31st. So I'd look at maybe the overnight index swaps market to see what that was saying or Fed funds futures or whatever. But I wouldn't trade those. I think they are useful for telling me what the markets think. And I think that some of those are better than others. But um, for all but the most sophisticated traders, I would say stay clear of the futures markets. But I guess you wouldn't say that. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, I think they're, I don't know, it just depends on the market. Um, and what your risk appetite is and if you're holding positions overnight or not and what your strategy is. Um, they're at least very transparent and you have um, centralized clearing and stuff like that. Um, not that you don't have that in other markets. I think the stock market's perfectly fine, but the volatility is a little higher in futures markets, so you have more chances to get in and out. Mm. And as I said, overnight index swaps are important as they tell you what the markets are thinking. But also, uh, you and I both remember very well when people were thinking about things like uh, credit default swaps and so on. And uh, uh, <laughs> very interesting to watch credit default swaps, uh, the, the, the spread, because um, if you want to know whether Greece is going to go bust, just look at what those spreads are telling you, because that will tell you what the markets think the likelihood is of this happening. Now, I know there are some people, we haven't really talked about this yet, but... Um, the current basket case in Europe is Italy. Now, Italy has a government that a lot of people are rather suspicious of, let me put it that way. It, it has a huge debts. I mean, absolutely enormous debts. And people I think still think that Italy could at some point bring down the Eurozone. I wonder about that because I think that on the whole, well, people have been saying Italy's a big problem for as long as I can remember, and it, it's not brought down the eurozone yet. But if there is another crisis, I think you do have to bear in mind that you know if Italy doesn't get its act together, I think it could conceivably pull the eurozone down and we could get another eurozone debt crisis. Um, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I just think it's something you need to worry about. And if you're worrying about it, look at what these market spreads are telling you about what people think the, the chances of a default are. Yeah. And that is a problem with the Eurozone, in my opinion, is you've got sovereign debt with a combined currency. So in this case, if they didn't, the lira would be tanking against other currencies, inflating you know, the Italian economy. So there's no chance to sort of rebalance, right? Well, this was always going to be the problem. How can you have a monetary union without a fiscal union? Again, talking economic theory here, but to me, it just doesn't make sense. Surely, if you're going to combine monetary policy, you have to combine fiscal policy as well. Again, going back to our 15-year-old economic student, I mean, learns that. The two have to be coordinated. Right. What do you make of the LIBOR? Do you think it survives? Oh, um, no, I think it's it was too damaged by all the LIBOR scandals that we saw before. You know, I read a lot of stuff now that comes through by email, mostly from the banks and the, the major investment houses. And, you know, I can't remember the last time anybody mentioned it. Um, it. It's just gone completely off the radar. I think it's just not something that anyone's interested in anymore. 
there was too big a scandal. I don't think it could recover, and I don't think it will recover. Do you? No. What replaces it? Ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm glad you asked me that, Jeff, um, because I actually have no idea. <laughs> so I'm going to throw it back to you again. Do tell me. I, I don't know. It's I don't know. It's the largest volume contract at the CME on their futures, right? The euro dollar contract is totally based on the LIBOR. And so that'll be something to watch here um, for sure. Just on a personal note, are you a, I guess you would call it over there, football. Are you a football fan? Oh, yes, very much so. Who's your team? Uh, Arsenal, North London's finest. Arsenal, come on, Arsenal. Exactly. Yes, okay. Yes, and what's your sport, Jeff? Uh, well, I like uh, the basic American sports, baseball, basketball, and, and, and football. And since I'm Chicagoan, I'm, you know, Cubs, Bulls, and um, Bears and Hawks. So, and soccer, I just, you know, it wasn't a part of my growing up. It's an interesting game to watch. I'm amazed that in the World Cup, England doesn't do better, but I kind of pull for them a little bit. Well, you know, we did just win the Cricket World Cup. Um, it, amazing. Amazing, yes, exactly. Because cricket, I have to say, has gone down in um, – fewer people follow it than used to. It's not as important as it used to be. And then all of a sudden, good heavens, we win the World Cup, and everybody was thinking – how on earth did that happen? I mean, quite, quite extraordinary. Anyway, we're all very pleased about that. And my other sport is rugby football, which you probably don't know so well. But I played rugby in college for a year. Okay. Well, when I was working for the Wall Street Journal, we had um, a bonding session on the Princeton University campus. And the very end of it was you had to score a field. Do you call it a field goal? Is that what it's called? Yeah, and I can tell you that uh, the, the British rugby players did an awful lot better than the American footballers did, and we were very proud of that. Yeah, yeah, you should be. We, um, My senior year at the University of Illinois, I met these guys. I don't know how I met them. And they said, you should play rugby. And I said, okay, fine. I had nothing better to do. And so I did. Um, I was not very good. But that year, our A side was fourth in the country. And Big Ten rugby is pretty good. The best teams in the United States, um, the University of California Bears, uh, the Old Blues, are very, very good. And the service academies are, are very good at rugby as well. Okay, here's two, two teams to look, after, look out for. Okay. Um, there's an English team called Saracens, who are also quite close to me in North London. They're a good team. And if you're in Ireland, Leinster. Leinster's based in uh, in Dublin, and that's a damn good team as well. I think uh, if you want to bet on rugby, I don't know whether you can or not, um, go for Saracens in England and for Leinster in Ireland. That's a good tip. That's a good tip. And we will close our um, podcast on that note. Thank you very much, Martin, for um, joining us today on the uh, Limit Up podcast with Top Step Trader. Martin is an analyst at Daily FX and host of his own podcast at Daily FX. You can find him there. And uh, it's been great getting to know you and, and um, listening to what you had to say. Thanks very much, Jeff. And it was very good to talk to you too. Take care. You too. Bye. Traders, thank you for making it to the grand finale of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. 
And thanks again to Martin Essex for spending some of his valuable time hanging out with us. If you like this show, which I certainly hope you did, then it sure would be great if you could go subscribe and rate Limit Up wherever you consume podcasts, but preferably Spotify or iTunes. It will really help us gain some momentum in this brutally competitive finance-slash-self-help podcast landscape. In the meantime, you can also join the Top Step Trader community on Facebook. That's a great place where traders of all levels and ages can talk shop and get feedback without any judgment. Let's see what else. Ah, yes, we have a blog, and yes, it currently looks as if it's from the early 2000s. But traders, we're looking to adjust those blog templates. And boy, is that something that turned out to be more difficult than I expected. The content, however, is still right on point, and isn't that what really counts? Once again, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode featuring another amazing guest. I hope you all have a wonderful end of your week and a fantastic weekend. And as always, namaste and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.